0: All right, so I'm Michelle Munger from the Presbytery Mid-Atlantic, a member of, and um, here we're talking about understanding individuals and families with disabilities. I am super excited that y'all are here uh, to to share in this conversation. And so we're going to focus this first class on families specifically, and then the second class at the three o'clock hour we'll actually talk more about what the church can do specifically so we're going to talk about families and I think I can speak to this because I do have two children of my own um, who are significantly um, they're nonverbal autistic and so we have actually experienced being told um, you can't come back so, and that was actually before we found the EPC. So I'm not going to, not going to blame, you know, I'm not going to, you know, point any fingers at, at our denomination at all, but, um, but that was super tough. And usually the, it was the same, the same response. We just don't have the resources to deal with your challenges. We just don't think that we can keep your children and everyone else safe. We just don't. Fill in the blank. And that was super tough as someone who was a. I was always at church as a child. You know, my husband and I, you know, faith was never a question for us. Um, before children, we were music leaders at our little military chapel. I mean, whenever the church was open, we were there. So to be told that you can't come back is pretty, it was pretty disheartening. And so we didn't go for a long time. My husband was a mili- active duty military, Coast Guard, so you move around every three years. I used to think that maybe it would be one thing if we had stayed in one place, right? Had those babies, you know, and they grow up in a single space, right? But oftentimes people aren't really appreciative when you bring the Hulk to Sunday school. So, and the youngest was very much my Hulk. I shared this picture. These are, of course. Um, very tiny babies, um, the oldest is two in this picture, two in a little bit, and he was just recently diagnosed in this picture, and um, during this season of life, because of his challenges, my husband and I actually took turns going to worship. We lived down down the hill from the military chapel, and we would just high-five at the door. One would go to Sunday school, one would go to the service, so, and that's not an uncommon thing so it happens a lot you know it maybe it won't be the same day but they might you go to church this week and I'll go next week right so they still get some um, some spiritual connection there so we're talking and so we're really going to talk about what are some of the challenges that families are dealing with that the church really can maybe if we change our perspective a little bit you know maybe more about what everyone might be able to benefit from versus what's important for me and my experience. you know, we might be able to um, move beyond some of the challenges. All right, so so here we get to, you don't get your packets until, you know now, because if I had given you the packets, of course, then no one would look at them. No one listened to me. so here you go. So we're going to look at, when you open your, your packet, there is a wonderful article that I've, I've got there for you on the left-hand side called Two Universal Stresses. This is an article that was actually republished um, recently. It was originally done in 2017, as you can see there. And... This is was done by one of my friends, Jolene Philo. She's a wonderful special needs advocate, disability advocate. She's written books on, um, on PTSD in children. And she is a wonderful resource. Her different dream living is one of her blogs, and she does has some great guests that she brings in. But I wanted to share this specific, because as we're talking about families specifically, this article really kind of boils it down to two universal stresses that most of our families with disabilities are dealing with. Time and assurance. And. The, and I we won't go through this whole thing cuz you'll be able to read this um, probably later later on in your in your own time but they they're on the second page time and assurance mom deals mom's deal with these two universal special needs stresses every day and every minute of their lives So they need time to care for their kids with special needs, time for other members of their family, time for themselves, time for work, cooking, cleaning, and shopping, time to advocate for their children. These moms never have enough time. And while this is only two years old, I think the same could be said for any parent. You know, it's not just moms, you know. Fathers, grandparents, aunts and uncles who are caring. If you are a caregiver, there just doesn't seem to be enough time in a day for all of the things that we feel like we have to be doing. And then assurance. They need assurance that their children with special needs are okay when they're in the care of others no matter where, what environment that may be. They want to know that their kids will be okay once their parents are no longer able to care for them which is huge. I know it's something that my husband and I think of often, you know, because they don't have a typically developing peer, brother, or sister. So, who's going to take care of them when my husband and I can't? And then, most of all, they want their children to experience the love and care of Jesus, and they want to be reunited in heaven one day with their children, perfectly restored and whole we crave the blessed, blessed assurance. And assurance is one of those things, especially early on um, for my family and for me, that I, I was not brought up in a reformed denomination and no one could help me with the assurance of my children's salvation because they weren't able to speak. According to everything that I had ever been taught, what happens to them? Right, and no one could say, well, and the answer was, oh, you don't have to worry about your boys. Seriously? You're going to teach me that you have to verbally profess and you have to do all of these things, and, but you're, but my children are exempt? So that was, a, that was a tough thing. So what do you do with that? What do you do, you know, how do you answer that parent, right, who just does not have that assurance yet? I don't have that problem anymore, but it was a pressing issue for many, many years. All right, and then I want us to look at this next piece behind that one. I I created this, I'm calling it the Special Needs Family Behavior Intervention Plan. So for those of you who are familiar with the the school system and how the schools help our children with disabilities, they have what's called an individualized education plan, which identifies their strengths and their challenges and how are we going to overcome, how are we going to encourage all of those things. And if you have a child or a person with some pretty tough behaviors, they get a behavior intervention plan. So generally that identifies, well, so the behavior might be he runs from the classroom, right? That's a behavior that we need to prevent, right? So what are the things, so you identify what are all the things that cause this person to engage in that behavior? What are the things that all of us are gonna do in order to a try to prevent it from even happening but then what what are we going to do if it does happen right so one of the this was before he had a behavior intervention plan but the youngest he was my he was my eloper he would leave and when I picked him up from school one day there was I just happened to notice there was shaving cream all on the inside of the store and I just happened to ask, what's the deal with the shaving cream? He said, oh, your son doesn't like shaving cream. He hasn't tried to get out of the classroom all day long. <laughs> it was an aversive for, to him. So it definitely helped motivate him to not do that. So, so he just broke all of the rules. <laughs> but that was pretty, I, I love that story. So so what I've created here is essentially a, be, a What are some of the behaviors that families with disabilities exhibit as it relates to to not being able to come to church? Almost every single one of the behavior, the barrier or obstacle to coming to church, I have personally experienced most of them. I have heard and read articles about the others. You know, even that very bottom when the church thinks my child is demon possessed, right? So that's a super tough concepts to wrap your head around. So as it relates to a behavior intervention plan, so what's the behavior? So, for instance, the family's not coming to church on Sunday morning because they are simply exhausted. They have been on top of their game all day long you know, Monday through Saturday, I know for a period of about two years, my family had a revolving door of therapists from, I think, 7.30 or 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, and then even some on Saturday. So on Sunday, I don't want to do anything. I don't even want to get out of my pajamas, right? It's the one, it's truly a day of rest for me, Right, so so not having to worry about putting on a happy face for anybody, right? So if that's the barrier, the obstacle, so some, so that next column here is suggestions for how to remove that obstacle. Well, does worshipness always have to happen on Sunday morning, especially for these families? I used to think, you know, feel that I don't care when it happens. I just want to be amongst. Christian brothers and sisters to be able to encourage and learn and build one another up. It doesn't have to be on Sunday morning. It could be on Friday night. It could be on Tuesday afternoon. I don't care. Just give me that opportunity, right? So then the, the, that last column, what are some of the tools that we might need in order to accomplish removing that obstacle? So do we create other gathering opportunities? There was one, I, I heard a story of, of someone who, they had a gentleman who had a significant cognitive disability who just could not um, stop himself from kind of some inappropriate comments to, to some of the, the gals in their community, in, in their congregation. So it got got pretty serious I mean he never did anything that was punishable by law right but if it's enough that people stopped coming or stopped wanting to be around that person right so it, but they didn't tell him you can't come back instead they said how about we create a, a community and come to you right so they pulled together essentially a little men's group that then ministered to him directly so, so that he wasn't in those uh, in the environment that allowed him to to make those inappropriate, you know, comments. Because he his cognitive disability just would not allow him to to stop. So, what kinds of other things can we do that aren't that might not be within our normal, you know, processes of our week? So, and you can see there's some some blanks, and those are purpose purposeful in that your community, your church community might respond differently than someone else, so, and might even respond differently than what's here. But this is these behavior interventions. When you find out that you've got a family that's not worshiping, we just have to ask them, right? When when um, when the oldest, as a baby, he did not like loud sounds at all and it was really difficult being a super tiny missional church and my husband was gone, deployed half of the time and the, as soon as the organ starts, he child starts wailing, you child wailing child can't sit in the sanctuary, right, so you scoop him up, and we go out to the little nursery, but oftentimes I found myself out there by myself, you know, and I have a conversation, you're not allowed to not not like music, little man, right, (laughs) because we're all about music, right, but it was, it, it was sensory though, it wasn't that he didn't like music, he just couldn't, it was hurting him, so, um, So we stopped going to that church because I just found it so frustrating that I was packing myself up to go sit in a nursery by myself because there just weren't people that were able. But when I look back, I didn't have the good conversations with the pastor. I didn't ask the grandmother next to me, would you be willing to come sit, even just sit with me? Or would you be willing? I didn't advocate for myself well. In that respect so i can look back and and wish i had done some things differently yeah. disability
1: <laughs> what was the
0: disability ministry
1: sorry it's okay can I don't know. Sorry. it's all right hey you, hey you
2: might be in the wrong building have you thought about that uh, might be also a different building. In the community okay.
0: center. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>
2: Can I ask a question about what you're sure. Visiting? Yeah. Um, would headphones have helped your son in that moment? Yes. They would. So well, they,
0: would he was a, a super baby. He was super tiny at that time. We did eventually use headphones um, when we reco- when we realized that the sensory processing issues mm-hmm. were a big part of it. Yeah. But I think even if we had had access to earplugs, you know, but even, but that was 20 years ago, you know, so didn't really make that correlation that maybe the organ music is actually hurting him and that I can stick earplugs in his ears and maybe we'll get through this. So, and that's just been a learning process, right? But I, I think, you know, definitely now earphones, having a basket of things, you know, it's definitely, and I have a few of the fidgets over there um, that that I like to provide. Cause I even need them for myself. You know, as I stand here and <laughs> fidget with my pen. So, um, so yeah, the the behavior family behavior intervention plan. What is it that's keeping that? What's keeping this family from participating? And is there anything that we can do? to help them.
3: How do you, how do you deal with a situation where you've got two to a large number of these individuals, especially with, with smaller children, and they all have, and in the school sit, our daughter's a special ed teacher, so she gets all this, we don't understand it. Mm -hmm. Dealing with two or three families where you've got these children with this wide variety of mm-hmm. needs and issues that they can't they can't deal with noise and they can't do this and they wanna do this and
0: how do you how do you manage that? Yeah. So the question is how do we manage all of the different and varied needs that are probably gonna be all together in one space? Probably with limited adult personnel too, right, to help satisfy that. We're actually going to talk about some of those needs specifically in the second half um, in in that next class, but it it does boil down to there are universal accommodation things that you can do, things that we're just going to build in because every single child, no matter if they have a disability or not, can utilize them things like a picture schedule. Even kids without disabilities, if you have a picture schedule in there that we're going to read first, then we're going to do songs, and you have a picture associated with those, it helps bring the anxiety level of the class way down because everyone knows where we're going. And then at the end, there's a picture that says home, right? Mom and dad's going to come get me, right? But we got to do all of these things first.
3: Make
0: it yeah, they do and so there's some universal things that you can put into place that every child can benefit from but then there's the individual well does joe need headphones does mary need something to chew on when she's here you know what kinds of specific things and generally and so there's the the universal stuff that you can do but that responsive stuff are the things that you have to have that sit down and have that conversation with you know what are the things that your child needs or even your adult right because children eventually grow up to be adults right and we don't want to kick them out when they're when they graduate even from the sixth grade right so all right so let's look at this next not this not the next next one the blue page here this is called the five stages of changing attitudes it's done by um, Dan Vander Plaats, and this these attitudes and the, these stages are really written from the church perspective so we're going to talk about these more in depth in the next session but we can actually utilize this as well as it relates to families because families do go through, and no, at least I did, a degree of coping, right? When you get that diagnosis at first, it's kind of crushing, kind of oh my gosh, you know what am I gonna do now? All of the things I expected are not gonna ever happen. Um, so there's a, a degree of, you know, so we were ignorant before the diagnosis right and now we're going to go into kind of a pity as far as you know woe is me you know what are what are we going to do now how are we going to do anything that we had expected you know my child may not ever be able to do whatever it is that you had these grand and glorious plans for right and then that that next stage of care when we identify that or kind of come around to the idea that well, yes, that might absolutely be true that your child is not going to be the pro football star you were expecting. He's not going to wrestle in, on the high school team. She's not going to you know, join the Russian ballet. You're right. She's not going to be a swim swim um, Olympian, as you had expected that she might be. But she is still who she is. She's been created by God in His image for a very specific purpose. So then we have to figure out what is that purpose? And then we have to, as parents and caregivers as well, decide how are we going to advocate best? So from so by understanding you know, that the family is dealing with all of these kind of emotions of grief and loss and then looking to the future, right? Then how can the church come alongside that person or those people in order to help support them in getting to that point where they really can see that, yes, he's autistic, but he's also made in God's image and God made him exactly as he was, wanted him to be. And he doesn't need to be cured. He doesn't need to stop doing all the things just to make us feel better, right? You need to let him flap his hands, let him get excited, let him walk up and down the aisle because he's expressing himself just as God had intended. So how so how do we care um, help help in that care. And then that the fourth stage of friendship, one of the most difficult things for me um, that I really had to deal with is overcoming the fact that I knew that my child was being disruptive and kind of weighing that against my need to be there, right? And what is, what is the benefit of a person being in, in an environment, you know, with someone with disabilities being in that kind of environment? The comment here says, I have come to know and spend time with a friend who has disability. This person has value in God's sight and also in mine, and I know that my life is better for having known this person, and as much as I have helped her, she has also blessed me. And I think the stories reflect that, too. When you hear a story of someone who's been able to interact, and generally that's the way it goes, right? That they've been um, blessed. Does anyone have a story like that 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 they can share? As I catch my breath, because I forget to breathe.
3: On on Sunday, we were watching the... uh, Golf tournament. And wasn't it the kid who won Gary Woodland? Yes, yeah. yes. Sometime later, it may have been even yesterday, there was a, well, I mean, I don't talk long enough. <laughs> okay. There was a, a program on TV and they were showing this young man, Gary Woodland, who won this, this golf tournament, interacting with a young woman who had Downs. Oh, I saw that story. Yes. And it was awesome. He had her on the golf course, and he would say, all right, well, this is the shot. Do you want to hit it? Yes. She did a great job. Wow. And uh, the two of them, they they clicked. I mean, the the time they had together was just awesome. And I think he enjoyed it at least as much as she did, maybe more.
2: The second half, he had her putt. One of, the, one of the shots, and it was at like a 10-foot putt, and she, she nailed
3: it. He says, you got this? She said, I got it. I got it. <laughs> it was yeah. great.
0: Yeah.
2: It was but so, the, yeah. the coordination of the, the working together, the friendship that they developed in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. was amazing. Yeah.
3: Another quick one. Our daughter is a special ed teacher. She teaches kids from first through third grade, and she loves these children, and they love her. We were Christmas shopping together two or three years ago, and as we're going down the escalator in a store, she was ahead of me. She turned around to say something and she said, Come on. She grabbed my hand, ran me down the escalator, around to the up escalator. I said, What's going on? She said, One of my kids is up there. I got to go see him.
0: That's great. Yeah. In terms
2: of Friendships. Yeah. I think there's a community that gets created uh, of special needs, adults, children, uh, and Special Olympics is, is a big plus for all of those individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been lucky to serve on the Games Committee in Oklahoma for the last uh, 20 years now, but we have had this summer we had 5,504 students, athletes, Individuals with special needs come, and it's just a joy to see their relationship both with one another yeah. and with their coaches mm-hmm. I mean it's it's just an exciting week for them to come mm-hmm. well, they feel great because they're at a they, we do it at OSU, mm-hmm. so you know they think they're going to school that's a big deal for them, mm-hmm. and boy, if they win a medal, oh my gosh yeah. it's just it's just really rewarding yeah so.
0: Well, and they get to kind of show off that they can do something. They can do things when probably for so much of their life they have been told that they cannot or have been denied that ability to do whatever it is. There's actually a very um, heartbreaking letter that was recently published this last week. It was a family who attended a, a very a well-known um, chapel at a college. She was an alumni of that college and she brought her child with disability and they were asked to leave in the middle of the service and she kind of tight ty- and she typed up this pretty significant letter that said I'm sorry that we attempted to participate in what we believed was a worship service, when in fact it must have been more of a performance, and that we weren't welcome, and I'm making this public so that no other family will make that same mistake. So there's huge things still still do, but um, in that letter she said that her child, while he might be nonverbal, knows exactly what's going on, knows that, he, that their family has been asked to leave again, and it's most likely his fault. So what do you do with that? How do you care for your child who knows that you know, they're the root cause of something that shouldn't be, right? And it's just very, very heartbreaking to, to see such a letter again, and just proves that we still have much, much work to do. But families are struggling with those things all of the time. And when they don't feel like they can attend, when they don't feel like they can leave their home, because they don't want to interrupt somebody else's experience. Especially, like I said, it took me a while to get over myself, essentially. That, no, my children have been made in the image of God, and we just need to go, and we'll deal with it. (laughs) We'll deal with whatever happens. So
2: how hard is it for you to leave your
0: kids in the care of others? Oh, for me, it's very difficult because we actually experienced an a, abuse um, experience at, in, within the school system. Mm-hmm. So I have personal mm-hmm. issues. <laughs> and now that they're getting to be the age of, of adults and need to go off to do different things, my husband and I are not seeing eye to eye <laughs> with, with what our options are and uh, so that's it that's gonna be a process for sure and it is especially when they can't tell you when something has happened that's that's for me the biggest issue you know my son couldn't tell me that he was being poked the way he was and yet you know and if it hadn't been for somebody overhearing a conversation We would have never known, so.
2: I fired my nursery director because she slapped my son, a two-year-old, in the face because he wouldn't ask for goldfish. Mm -hmm. But he's nonverbal.
0: Wow. I was was the pastor. Yeah,
2: she knew knew I was the pastor, you know? It's crazy. I mean, the stories you you Mm -hmm. hear, I mean, it's like shocking that you think stuff like that would ever happen. Mm -hmm.
0: But they do. Yeah. Yeah. Frustration. Yeah, it is. You know, so it's things. And it's those stories. It only takes one bad experience, right, for a family to 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 say, "I'm not going back.
2: back." Yeah, I don't know if I would have gone back to my own church. Yeah, right. You know, slap <laughs> my kid.
0: Yeah. Well.
2: Good thing I could fire
0: her. Yeah, it's true. Yep. All right. So let's. Um. How much? Where are we at on time? Um. It was Ten to two. Ten to two. Okay. So, we're going to run through these a little bit. Um, I, this is something I did talk about briefly last, last year, uh, but there are some significant challenges that families are dealing with. And uh, there are three universal barriers. The number one being architecture. It's a classic image. You know, the sign says everyone welcome, but is everyone really welcome?
1: Not I'm thinking get right.
0: No, nope, not if they can't get up yeah, into the into the yeah. area where everyone else is. Communication is the next barrier, challenge that families are, are looking at and this is the visual, visual schedule that I was talking about like kind of a universal thing that you can create that is just helpful for everyone. Do we have you know, if there are hearing issues, do you have supports? Do you have large print Bibles um, or, or even supports you know, for, your, for your bulletins? Uh, i like to share, how, how many of you have heard of the N.I. little rv version of the Bible? So it's the N.I. Rev- rev- reader's version of the Bible this and I think it was originally created as a child's Bible intended for age 5 to 8 ish right so it's always had a very childish cover you know cartoons and things on the inside but there has been a lot more of non-child oriented NIRV versions and these are amazing for your English as second language readers because the words, the sentences are all broken down into smaller bite-sized pieces, right? So it's also great for those with cognitive disabilities too, who are still learning to read, who are still trying to figure that out. So when it's packaged in something that is not childish, right, then anyone can use it. And there's also large print options out there, so. While I know it's not our ESV and maybe our more um, preferred reformed versions, it's still an excellent tool to have on hand. Communication, I think, also goes into that part where, you know, as a family, I didn't necessarily know what I needed because I was in the midst of the challenges of dealing with my, my child. How do you communicate
3: with your kids? How do I? Mm-hmm. Or how do they communicate
2: with
0: you? Yeah, they're um, they're mostly nonverbal. the The oldest, he kind of just goes with the flow, and he has enough receptive language that he can come to the dining table. He can get in the car. He can put on his shoes just from a verbal command. But he doesn't necessarily communicate. Usually, it's body language, you know, or you know if he's. Right. Mm-mm. No. No. no he, he's very much um, not. Yeah, not communicative that way. The the youngest, he's very good with his receptive language, so he understands spoken word a whole lot better than his older brother. But he's still, he's very much body language, and you know, if if he needs deep pressure, I know that because he starts galloping through the house. You know, so, so we've kind of, as his parents, been able to figure out some of those cues. But those cues don't work when we're in public, right? So we have to figure out then how do we communicate with everyone that he's around what to look for, you know. So, so we have to be able to have that communication with them, with anyone that might be in their vicinity.
1: I've seen... Um Kids with autism wear like little placards that says nonverbal, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff. And I know because that would have been great because we've had a few incidences in our town and uh, the St. Cloud uh, area where um, autistic children have walked away yep. from their homes. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, they gravitate towards water
0: mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> those two were tragic accidents.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah.
2: How do you feel about wearing name tags like that? Like, I am not yeah. normal.
0: I, that is definitely a, a family-specific thing. Yeah. Um, you're, there are some families, even moms, that will deposit their child and not tell you a single thing because they don't want their child to be treated any different than any other child. Which which to a point but usually it rears its head right and people get frustrated right so if we create an environment though where mom is okay with having sitting down and having that conversation and helping them to realize that we just want to do what's the very best we want them to be able to fully participate in every single thing that we want to do so we need to know you know help us understand Who your child is, what are their likes.
1: We're not trying to be nosy, you know, or get into your into your specifics. Yeah. You know, we just want to know how we can help the child.
0: Right. And most of the time a family can tell if the environment is gonna be friendly and welcoming pretty quickly. Right? Just based on body language and you know, how people would treat treat the new new family right away. But being willing to have to reach out and say, we want to know, you know, do you have a space on your website that says we want we want you to come worship with us? Please call and make an appointment so that we can be fully prepared and ready to welcome your family. Mm -hmm. So 20 years ago, you know, none of that conversation was happening it's definitely been a progression of awareness and the word awareness is kind of going out of vogue within the disability community because we're, we're done with being aware right now we want to accept now we want to include and embrace right and that those are very those are kinda of more verbs there's action behind those things as opposed to awareness which is very passive Right, sure, yes, I, uh, I, I am now aware of that situation. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to do anything with that information. But yes, I am aware. <laughs> so we got to move past that awareness.
2: He gives a, a little bit of that uh, in that our senior pastor got a disabled child. And he's very good about, and so is his wife, very good about sharing the difficulties and the resolutions. Yeah. So, you know, it creates an awareness, but also, you know, this is how we deal with Jonathan. If you're going to meet with him, you can do the
1: same thing. Mm -hmm. It's very helpful.
0: Yeah. I know when my family first started attending um, Northampton, we actually had a little meet and greet, essentially, with the boys, where we showed them that the boys could do things but it was in a very controlled environment you know we had we had a little meal and we had questions that they were able to ask and you know interact with the boys and ask us questions you know about well, what should we do if and those were very helpful now not every parent is going to be willing to do that but I think you know as the advocacy Become something that people understand they need to do more and do better for. I'm actually writing a book that is going to be out this summer, Woo-hoo. and it was and it's really about helping families like like mine to be able to advocate for themselves better. I can look back and wish I had done so many things differently. If I had just said something to someone, you know, in that moment, would our experience have been better or different, even. So.
1: You know, that uh, takes me back to when our adult children were kids and they were in school and with IEPs and whatnot, Mm -hmm. ADHD, ADD. And um, that was one of the things that um, stuck in my head was this phrase that the parent is the, best, is the child's best advocate. Mm-hmm. And going through PACER group and going through other groups. Yeah. Um, that's very true. Mm-hmm. That's very true.
0: So when you have a family who is just exhausted, yeah. right? Who have, just like in that article, you know, that time issue. Yeah. You know, we have just enough time to get everyone, you know, dressed. And, you know, the... That the floor vacuumed for the therapist and then you know all the other things that have to happen yeah. so when do you find time to be that advocate yeah. sometimes and even some families just struggle well what does that mean how do I do that I know I was, I was fortunate to find a conference um, through rightslaw.com Peter and Pamela Wright um, W-R-I-G-H-T they have an amazing book called "From Emotions to Advocacy," that um, if you are of a mind to have some resources for families with disabilities, that is a um, very helpful, and it really helps them advocate best. He he is of course talking about you know school and medical stuff, but all of the concepts work for church involvement as well. Um, so that's "From Emotions to Advocacy," and um. Peter Wright actually he was a, a lawyer who was dyslexic who argued before the Supreme Court for disability um, issues and won. so he's a really good advocate to our community. All right, and this the third barrier attitude, I love this baby's face because often <laughs> often you know, I, I've seen that face so often, you know, of, of the person looking back, kind of side-eyed, just like, what is your problem? Why are you still here? You should have gone, you left the sanctuary 10 minutes ago, right? So, what it,
1: said what to my mom?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, just that side-eye glance, you know, Oftentimes, attitude is that thing. We can have ramps. We can do all the architecture thing. We can create all of those supports for communication. But if our people still value their own worship experience over someone else else even being there, it's still not going to go anywhere. And the attitude thing definitely starts with our church sessions and with our our staff deserve is everyone on board with with that how do we overcome that there are some different audits out there i didn't put i actually created a tool that we're going to go over in the second half but there's um on the right side, this Expectations and Abilities Audit, it's on the right hand side of your packet. When it, so many of the audits feel overwhelming and an, an accessibility audit is something that says, well do we have all of these things in place in order to be able to welcome someone? So this tool is really kind of intended to be like a half step in between the larger accessibility audit whereas you know can we ask ourselves what do we expect that everyone's experiencing when we worship together and then that second part are we able to really accomplish all of those expectations we expect that everyone can see the slides for the for our worship songs but is that actually the case? Do we need to provide some printed versions? Do we need to provide some large print versions? Do we need, can everyone read the bulletin if that's still an important thing? Do we need to provide some large print?
1: We've started doing that within the last couple years. Uh, Large print bulletins, um, Bibles, large print Bibles. Mm -hmm. um, printed music mm-hmm. you know what the songs are singing, praise praise worship yeah uh and they've even gone as far as to print out kids activity sheets mm-hmm. that they can do during the service yeah that also is uh, pertains to the service yeah it's like he has the pastor's got four or five different keywords and the kids um uh check off each time he says the yeah. those words. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great interaction. Well, most of the most of the time it's past the pastor's kids doing
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> well he's got five boys. Whatever you whatever you need to do. Yeah. So these the abilities portion there at the bottom, under the attitude, is our attention drawn to what is happening next to us? Do we expect others to respond like we would respond? I know that's that's a big one. Especially with some of our older generation folks. They don't understand the behaviors. They don't understand why you just can't discipline and bring that child in line.
1: Not like it used to be.
0: Yeah. Do we measure our words to be encouraging always? When, uh, especially a new family, they've dropped off their child, they've gone on to worship, they've had they've actually been able to participate the whole time. Do you really want to tell mom when she comes back to get the child that he threw goldfish all over the room? Is that really necessary to tell mom that he tossed goldfish around the room? Not really. So it's those kinds of things. You know, do we measure You know what what we, what we share, so that we can encourage them to continue. Because we can deal with goldfish, right? But w- if we said, if we told mom that, would she feel like, oh, I probably shouldn't come back? So, because we never really know how mom and dad or grandparent, whoever, how, that caregiver, how they're going to take especially words that are frustrating that are probably equally frustrating to them right how how are they going to process this you know so maybe we have a meeting about you know and meet with them later on in the week but we're not going to we're we're not going to pull them down right now after they've re- finally been able to experience worship and really been able you know to connect with God in that moment so but there are different tools out there for how we address barriers. All right, so the three universal barriers are the ones that are the easiest to talk about to just generally anyone. And then there's the programmatic and liturgical barrier. Um, Those were actually, these five barriers were actually created um, or penned by uh, Eric Carter. He is out of Vanderbilt University. He has this very cool book, including people with disabilities and faith communities and all of, all of these people who are writing things for the disability community have great, great insight and great, great things. But those are, do our programs match? Just like I said, does, do we really have to meet on Sunday morning for if we're going to reach these families? Are we able to answer the question if whether or not my child is going to go to heaven or not? You know, the liturgical. What about sacraments? You know, what about baptism? When you have a family who is not part of a reformed denomination, and now they start coming to your church, but they've got a 21-year-old son who's nonverbal, do we baptize that child? Because he's still a child. You know, he's still someone's child. He Yes, he is an adult, but he's not going to be able to verbalize. Right? So what do we do with that? So we kind of have to be prepared for those those things. All right, and this, this last one, let's talk about Book of Order. I need y'all's help. Um, this is something that the... One of the teams are going to be looking at, I think it's the theology group. These are some suggestions that I've sent to the theology team. Asking them to take a look at our book of order and some of the language. I kind of went through all of it, the the entire thing. And looked for those areas that maybe because the book of order was written when it was the language is likely unintentionally exclusive so and y'all can look through that in your copious spare time but, but I'm really hoping that the theology team will take up some of the concerns that I've shared there alright and the liturgical issues this one is just super huge for many like I you know, I didn't know for many, many years. I was not assured of my child's future for many, many years, just personally. Because nobody could answer my question well. They just said, don't worry about it. So we need to be able to be ready for those. All right, and then, and then the, the last bit I would, I would hope that, you know, with this information, you might be able to create a commitment, you know, that your church commitment to families with disabilities. And I love the, I mean, the whole book of, of Luke is amazing, but Luke 14 is absolutely my most favorite chapter of Luke <laughs> because there's just so many things in it as it relates to how the church, Big C Church. Right? how Christians should be interacting with people with disabilities. And, you know, the verses 13 through 14, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. And that's actually before that last Luke's version of the the great banquet, right? Which again, we're going to, we want to compel them to come in. So I hope that this has been helpful um, to be able to support some of those families so